Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Their Own Words. History from those who lived it. My name is Danny. And I'm Ava. And today we're going to be taking a look at the diary of Maria Kust. Maria was the wife of Robert Kust, an administrator with the East India Company. And the entries we have in her diary about 1856 to 1857 detail her marriage to Robert and them having their first baby in England before Robert is recalled to India. She's just 23 years old when they get married, and what her diary offers us is a pretty interesting glimpse into what life was like as a young Victorian mother and wife. And one of the things we're going to be focusing on is the relationship between Maria and her husband. They were, in fact, very devoted to one another, which is a narrative that you do not often hear of in Victorian history. Their love, which is detailed in Maria's diary entries, really flies in the face of stereotypes around Victorian marital relationships. This one really is a love story for the ages. The first entry we're going to read is from May 10th, which was Robert and Maria's wedding day. So in this entry, she details what they did on their wedding day. And then there's reference to a place called Cocaine Hatley in Bedfordshire. And that's where they spent their honeymoon. So it reads, awoke at six o'clock, feeling almost ill with nervousness and fatigue. Breakfasted all together at eight o'clock and at 10 commenced my toilette. Toilette, by the way, in this instance, is just being used as an expression for getting ready. At half past 11 o'clock, left 61 Eaton Square with my dear mother. On our arrival at St. Peter's Church, we had some difficulty in being allowed to enter by the vestry door. Sir G. Tyler and Uncle Edmund came out to meet us, and in the vestry we found Mr. Fuller and my eight bridesmaids. Namely Louise and Sophie, Eleanor and Georgie Kust, Charlotte and Jane Astle, Harriet Gosling and Louisa Cameron. We immediately proceeded into the church where all were assembled, and before the clock had struck twelve, I was united in the bonds of matrimony to my long-loved Robert. After registering our names, we returned to Eaton Square in Miss Kuss's carriage. The party quickly assembled, and after some little delay, we went up to breakfast in the drawing rooms. The rooms were crowded, and everything went off as well as possible. The bishop proposed our health, to which Robert responded. There was tremendous cheering after each speech. I remained in the room till all was over and then went to change my dress. Left Eaton Square with my dear husband in Miss Kust's carriage and went to Hill Street to see Mr. Kust and the Mrs. Kust. Stayed till four o'clock when upon partaking of coffee we started for King's Cross where we found the maid and luggage. Five o'clock train to Sandy, carriage and post horses to Cocaine which we reached at seven o'clock and found the bells ringing and the school children cheering. We walked out to speak to them and dined at quarter before eight o'clock. A very, very happy day and bright throughout. May God grant that it may be but the beginning of many happy years to us both, and may he assist me to fulfill those vows of duty and obedience to my husband, which I this day made. So this excerpt I thought was notable because it gives us context for Maria and Robert's relationship, but it also gives us a sense of maybe what a wedding day in Victorian England could typically look like. The first thing to note along these lines is that the wedding takes place before noon. And the reason for this is that until the 1880s, in England, marriages were actually required to take place in the morning by law. It also seems like it's quite a short ceremony because she leaves the place she's getting ready at 11.30 and she's married before noon. So it's it's quite a short amount of time. You might think, as well, it seems a bit odd that they have breakfast after the ceremony, but that's because traditionally the reception meal that immediately followed the wedding was traditionally called the wedding breakfast. And again, this is because people would typically get married in the morning and then eat afterwards. 
And I'm not totally sure, but I think that the reason there was a wedding breakfast is because traditionally, especially in Catholic circles, I know people would fast before taking communion. So marriage being another special ceremony, a sacrament, this might be why people traditionally didn't eat before the wedding ceremony. Mm. I also love the fact that she names all these people who are involved in the wedding day because it just makes it seem that much more real. It makes history come alive for us that Mm. she's mentioning all these people, both first names and last names. And there's so much detail in this diary entry about all the things that she does during this day. Also a side note, I can't believe she had eight bridesmaids. That is a lot. That's a fairly big wedding party. I don't know if back then it was still traditional for the groom and the bride to match like numbers of... Yeah, I don't think so. And... The reason I think this is so maybe strange is because I always heard that traditionally smaller wedding parties were were kind of the norm back in the day. Like even my mom, when she got married, she had two bridesmaids and my dad had one best man. And that was, they said, the way that it used to be done. The guy has one best man. the, The woman has like a couple of bridesmaids. Maybe this is meant to mirror a high society wedding. I mean, because we're obviously somewhat fairly well off. Yeah, they do seem like a fairly affluent family, and they would be with him working for the East India Company. The last thing I want to say on this entry is that the last line is quite telling of how she feels about him and, and the fact that she very much feels a sense of duty and devotedness to him. She says, May God grant that it may be but the beginning of many happy years to us both, and may he assist me to fulfill these vows of duty and obedience to my husband, which I this day made. So she clearly has this intense sense of duty and loyalty and love for her husband. And the language she uses when she says duty and obedience reflects what the traditional marriage vows of the time would have been. It would have been to love, honor, and obey your husband. So that reflects what she would have said in her wedding vows. I find it interesting that she reflects on this in her diary, like it was that significant. Obviously, Mm -hmm. the wedding day is significant, the dress, the friends, the family, the food, all that. But she also recognizes that the actual vows, the ceremony itself, was a very significant moment in her life. Yeah, and she calls him her long-loved Robert. So there's clearly a lot of love between these two. Okay, so the next excerpt we have is from March 16th, 1857. So Maria and Robert have been married for about 10 months at this point. So it reads, Passed the morning in the British Museum, my first visit, went in the evening to the Princess's Theatre to see Richard II, which is splendidly got up. But being the second piece, it lasts so late that we could not stay. I was unlucky enough to be so faint as to have to retire into fresh air, and in so doing lost one of my Florentine bracelets. Okay, so she says it's her first visit to the British Museum. The museum's been open actually for now about 100 years, but... I did some research on this in the King's Library, which is, if you've ever been to the British Museum, it's this huge room full of books belonged to King George III. The King's Library had only just opened to the public this year. So she would have gotten to see that. The British Museum itself was in a different building, but during the Victorian era, that building was, the original building was knocked down and they completely remodeled the place. And also the Princess's Theatre was a theatre in Oxford Street in London, and it had originally opened in 1828, but eventually closed in 1902. And she's talking about going to Richard II, which is partly what this theater is actually famous for, is Charles Keene's Shakespeare revivals, which started in around 1849. And for about 10 years, they ran famous Shakespeare plays and sort of 
helped to revitalize Shakespeare's works to yeah. the British public. Okay, we're going to continue reading now a couple months down the road. This entry is from May 27th. Yeah, this is a, a short one-line entry. The Telegraph brought the sad news of the mutiny in India and the capture of Delhi. Robert much distressed. So again, we talked about this earlier. Robert was working for the East India Company. And this mutiny they're talking about in India was essentially a full-scale rebellion against British rule. There were Indians fighting for and against the British, and ultimately it ended in another hundred years of British rule. Some people consider this the first war of Indian independence, so it was quite a chaotic time, and I'm sure both Robert and Maria were quite grateful that he was still in England when all this was playing out. For a bit further context, this mutiny is quite significant, not just in the diary for their personal lives, but in the broader history as well, because this moment ultimately marked the transfer of rule over India from the East India Company to the British Crown directly. So the British Raj officially starts in 1858, right around the time that Robert ends up heading back to India. And this is the moment that India becomes the, quote, jewel in the crown of the British Empire. Yeah, and over the next century, India and Britain were so intrinsically connected. People like Robert were always going back and forth between the two countries. Uh, and my own family actually has an interesting connection to this period of time. My great-great-grandfather was involved in the building of the railway in India. And his son, my great-grandfather, was a member of the police force during the time of the Raj. Oh, that's a really cool piece of family history. I didn't know that. Okay, so the next excerpt we're going to read is October 17 and 18. We'll read those two for you back to back. Okay, so October 17th reads... Symptoms showed themselves, which prevented my going down to breakfast. Dr. Buller was sent for and ordered me to bed, there to remain, though not feeling at all ill. Mama slept in my room. And October 18th reads, A slight pain caused a note to be dispatched post-haste to Dr. Buller. The pains increased in frequency and severity. Dr. B arrived at 11.40, and at 12.20 our little one was brought into the world and cried aloud. There being no nurse, Horton and Anne, housemaid, had to wash and dress the infant, who was pronounced to be a fine child, but sometime afterwards was considered very small indeed. She was born with dark hair and beautiful nails on her hands and feet. Dear Robert was allowed by Dr. B to be of the greatest comfort to me in supporting me during the last pains. I was ordered to be kept very quiet, but nevertheless saw my sisters in the evening. The baby was brought to me several times in the day and night, but not allowed to remain. At the time of the birth, there were present Dr. B, Robert, Mama, Horton, and Caroline. The sentence that interests me is when she says, I was ordered to be kept very quiet, but nevertheless saw my sisters in the evening. So I'm assuming this is after the birth, but it is interesting that she says she was ordered to be kept very quietly. Like, why is that? Yeah, I think this is quite characteristic of Victorian birthing practices. In doing some research for this episode... I came across some text from a book written by Mrs. Elizabeth Scoville, and it's called uh, Preparation for Motherhood, published in 1896. And in it, she says that after all that the newly made mother has undergone, quote, she needs perfect quiet for several hours before she's permitted to see anyone. A five minutes interview with her husband is all that should be granted, which looks like Robert was actually allowed in the room during the birth mm -hmm. to help her through it, which I think is quite unusual for the period. But seems uh, to fit in pretty well with what we know about their very close, intimate relationship. That's true. That's very true. So Mrs. Scoville goes on to say, quote, that 
Excitement is dangerous and no visitors must be permitted to enter the room, nor should conversation be allowed, even if she wishes to talk. Neglect of this precaution may cause serious disaster, unquote. So she is allowed to see her sisters later on, but my thoughts on this are that medicine is still somewhat rudimentary compared to what we have now. Mm-hmm. And perhaps in many cases, it wasn't exactly known what could go wrong with a woman after she gives birth, but it was known that it was quite likely for some threat of death to present itself shortly after giving birth. So the idea maybe was that if we can keep everyone quiet, not let them get excited, then perhaps after a day or two, the most risk has passed off and mothers have been well rested at this point. They're less likely to get sick or take a turn. From a common sense point of view, you think about like rest is often the best thing for our bodies. So maybe the thinking was rest with no kind of interruption, nothing that would cause any kind of stress or exertion from the mother. So the next excerpt we're going to read is from November the 3rd. The baby's a couple of weeks old now, and it looks like the first bout of sickness strikes the home. Okay, it reads, At 8.45, the baby was suddenly seized with rattling in her throat, having been taken from her cot apparently well. Mama was called, and she was, to all appearance, almost suffocated. Mrs. Crowder loosened her clothes and rubbed her chest and back, while Caroline held the candle close to her eyes, which made her cry and sneeze, which relieved her. Mama rubbed tallow on her forehead, and after three quarters of an hour, she was brought to me, terribly altered in countenance, but a moderate meal brought her more to herself. The cause was supposed to be that after sucking, two hours before, she had been sick and thrown up the milk into her head, and on awakening, all the passages for breath were closed. So the rattling in the throat is this reaction to having something built up in her windpipe, it sounds like. Mm. And this was essentially medicine in the 1800s there was no quick call the emergency room they had to kind of do what they could i thought that probably the most interesting treatment here was the candle in the eyes yeah to make the baby sneeze yeah and also what did i wonder what she means when she says and thrown up the milk into her head well that's what i think she means that she had like into the nasal passage or yeah yeah that would be such a frightening experience as a new mother to see your baby essentially choking Mm mm-hmm And it sounds like they were on the edge of her suffocating, but they were able to bring her back, thankfully. Okay, moving on to November 30th. So the context for this entry is that Robert actually finds out that he has to go back to India. So it reads, Robert took his baggage over to Southampton to be shipped to Calcutta. This does indeed look like going. The next entry is December 5th, which is the one right after November 30th. It reads, Thoroughly uncomfortable and nervous, Albinia Lucy was received into the church by Mr. Canning at St. George's Chapel and duly registered. There was a christening breakfast and a large cake with a candle on the top. December 6. Received the Holy Sacrament with my dear husband for the last time before his departure for India. God grant we may again kneel together at his altar. December 10th. Baby weighed in her night clothes. After deducting their weight, she was found to be seven pounds, six ounces. That's a tiny baby. And December 20th reads, the last day together, both of us sadly out of spirits and I so nervous I could not sit through the dinner, though I came in again for the dessert and touched glasses with dear Robert. He finally arranged all papers to be left with me, gave me his watch and paper of wishes to be executed. He gave me a bracelet of his hair as a Christmas gift and also the second cameo brooch as a wedding day present for the next 10th of May. 
And then the last excerpt we'll read in this section is December 21st. A sad, sad day for us both. We got up at 7am, said our prayers together for the last time for many long months. Robert had his breakfast and then took leave of the baby. We both wept bitterly, especially dearest Robert, when the moment of parting came, at 8 o'clock. Bob drove him off in the pony carriage. I rushed to the back stairs window and saw him wave his handkerchief as long as he was in sight, and then went sadly back to bed. What a sad series of diary entries. It is sad. I mean, she's newly married, just had a baby, and her husband is called away. Yeah. Something I want to make note of is a very small detail in the last diary entry that I read that might otherwise go unnoticed. The fact that Maria says a sad, sad day for us both, I think is a really important detail and and should not be glossed over. She repeats the word sad. And I think this is significant because Victorians were not known for for using superfluous or redundant words. They were, as we saw in our Dickens episode, often much more direct. And yet here she uses the word sad twice. And I think this really just conveys how keenly she feels her husband's absence. She adds the second sad for emphasis. It's as if just saying it was sad once is not sufficient to convey how deeply she feels. This is one of two instances in the diary entries we've read where she repeats a word. The other is on her wedding day. So she uses the word very twice. She says, a very, very happy day. So there are two instances in which she repeats a word on her wedding day and on the day her husband leaves. And I think there's something very poetic in this parallelism. These are both instances of intense emotion from one end of the spectrum to the other. One is an instance of intense happiness, the other of intense sadness. Yeah, that's a great detail you picked up on there, Ava, because you're right, they weren't known for repeating their words. They were often quite direct. The fact that she repeats these words on her happiest day and her presumably saddest day really marks significant moments for her on both occasions. And she's letting us know that by repeating these words. Mm. And there is truth when we speak about the Victorians as these stoic people. There is a, a grain of truth in that, in that they were less introspective. They were not subject to emotionalism and being over-emotional. But it cannot be denied that they still did feel and express emotion, especially within intimate relationships. And this diary entry is an example of just that. I mean, she even says, we both wept bitterly, especially dearest Robert. So they're both kind of a mess at this point. And why wouldn't you be? Your husband is leaving for many months and you're a new mum and a new wife. And the perils of crossing the ocean are not to be underestimated here either, because she doesn't know if she's going to see him again. She's very hopeful that she will. And obviously the Victorians have conquered the waves and Britannia rules the waves at this time. So the perils are less than perhaps they had been in previous centuries. But still, there's definitely a potential for danger. Yeah. I also think it's really cute that after he leaves, she notes, I rushed to the back stairs window and saw him wave his handkerchief as long as he was in sight. So not only is she rushing to try and get a last glimpse of him. When she gets there, she sees that he is waving his handkerchief at her. You get a sense that they both have the same level of love and devotion to each other. Yeah, you're right. We think of the Victorians as stiff, unfeeling people, but their relationship was a real romance. They were obviously very affectionate with one another. And we don't know for sure that that was rare, but 
it's certainly not something we hear much about. So again, this just goes to show you what a primary source can tell you about an era that general history might not. Yeah. So next up, we're going to read from the month of January, a few journal entries, the year 1858, starting with January 5th. So January 5th reads, Dr. Buller came to vaccinate the baby. She cried a great deal and her arm, which was punctured in three places, bled a good deal, but she went to sleep afterwards. January 12th. Woke with a cold and sore throat, Dr. Buller came to the baby and pronounced her to have taken the infection most vigorously. He ordered mustard and linseed poultices to my throat, gargle of tepid water and to stay at home. January 13th. Poor baby's arm in a highly inflamed state from the shoulder to the point of the elbow, and so painful she could not bear it to be touched. Tepid water bandages, however, were of great use as well as sponging. January 14th. Baby's arm better, though still much inflamed and heated. Waller tried to give her some magnesia, but she would not keep it down. Okay, so point of note there is the poultice treatment, I think. That's a very popular Victorian remedy. And we're going to end up talking a little bit more about this when we get to our episode on Florence Nightingale. So I thought now would be a good time to talk about exactly what those were and how they were used. So she mentions linseed and mustard, and oftentimes they could also be made with bread and mixed with water, maybe bran, flour, starch, and then these would be put onto somebody, maybe with a bandage or a wrap of some kind, and poultices were believed to draw out inflammation and infection. People were often prescribed them for boils, toothaches, bunions, you name it. Even the treatment of some serious illnesses, like TB and cholera, often involves some form of poultice being given to patients. So both doctors and nurses were trained in how to make them and how to apply them, but there would often be homemade ones too, which uh, may have been the case in this instance. All right, we're going to skip down a few months in the diary to when we hear from Robert on June 5th. Yes. June 5th reads, Dear Robert's first letter from Lahore arrived. Number 24. Announcing his arrival and full of plans for our coming out to him. God grant our wishes may be fulfilled and we may be together by Christmas at last. So she hasn't seen him for about six months. Wow, so that's a fair amount of time to go without seeing anybody, even today. I mean, but we obviously have much faster methods of communication. Well, and she's anticipating, so she hasn't seen him for six months, but she's anticipating that she will be with him by Christmas. So she's It will an- be a full year. Yeah, she's anticipating almost a year of not seeing him. Wow. So it seems like a lot of the entries we're getting in Maria's diary center around the baby and the baby's health and growth because that's sort of, I think, typical for a mother. When a baby's born, your life revolves around the child, and also Robert's gone, so there's not much happening with her and Robert together. Mm-hmm. The next entry I want to read is from September the 5th, and this says, quote, Alba crawled across the room for the first time. And I think that's significant, because for most parents, that's probably still something you'd record and remark upon in some way. The first time your baby crawls, the first time they walk, the first time they talk. So these are the sorts of moments that she's marking in her journal. Yeah, and in that same vein, a month later, October 18th, she says, Our darling Alba's first birthday. We weighed her and measured her. Weight 19 pounds, height 2 foot 3 inches and a half. 
So again, she's focusing on the baby's development and she's marking major milestones. Obviously the first birthday is a big milestone. And something sad to think about is that Robert wasn't here for that moment, for the Mm -hmm. first birthday. And speaking of Robert, by September of 1858, so a month before the entry I just read, Maria is at this point making travel arrangements. So October 25th reads... Left Langdon by 10 o'clock train for Southampton, went on board the Ripon at 1 o'clock and got my cabin the Admiralty agents had arranged. Took leave of all my dear relations, not least my kind brother-in-law, Harry Kust, who has been a true brother to me. At 2pm we steamed out of dock, waving our handkerchiefs, eventually even Alba trying to do the same. So this is the last diary entry we have. And this is the moment at which she leaves England and goes to India And one thing I want to note is just the cozy kind of picture of a family that she presents to us. She says, Took leave of all my dear relations, not least my kind brother-in-law, Harry Kust, who has been a true brother to me. And it's just quite sweet that she has this relationship with her husband's family. And though obviously she did endure suffering with being without her husband for a long time, it's quite nice that she has so many people around her to support her. She mentions a lot of people throughout her diary entries, so it's clear that she does have a lot of support and a lot of love from her family. And it's also quite sad because she is now leaving this family behind and it wasn't the same as it is today when you move to a different country and you can always hop back and forth. People did move between the two countries, but it wasn't as common and so it's it's possible that they never went back and never saw their family again. I think you're right. I think her emotions are all over the place right now because she's probably overjoyed and excited to go and be joining Robert, mm-hmm. you know. But she's also definitely a bit upset with having to leave her family. And actually, the editor's note that's appended to this diary, this group of entries, says that she would not return to England because she would die in India in 1864. I'll read the editor's note here for you. Maria sailed off to India, where she settled in Lahore with her beloved Robert. She died in 1864 to Robert's obvious distress, who read through her diaries and added his own sad comments here and there. When she notes that she must stop writing because of her pregnancy, he explains, My dear wife consulted Dr. Lowcock, who ordered it. With her diaries is a sketch plan of their house in Lahore, on which he has marked a bedroom, quote, In this room my sweet wife died. Robert married twice more and lived on until 1909. His own diaries are in the British Library. And in them we meet Albinia Lucy again, sturdily outperforming her timid brother at riding school. She must have taken after her mother, who loved to ride. This makes me so sad. It is actually kind of a sad story. I mean, they had a very happy marriage. They loved each other. They were able to spend some years together. But it is unfortunate that her life was cut short and he ends up living for a very long time without her. But Yeah, and it, the end of the diary entries seem very happy. It's like she's going off to be reunited with her love. So it, there's a temporary happiness that we feel. But after reading the editor's note, it becomes quite sad. On that note, that is all we have for you from Maria's Diary. As always, thank you so much for listening to the show. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please send us an email at theirownwordspod at gmail.com. We need your questions because at the end of this series of episodes on the Victorians, we're going to be answering your questions in a very special episode. And make sure to tune in next week for our episode on Queen Victoria.
Thanks so much, guys. Bye.